What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. For this podcast, we have something special, a week without Trump. I think it's a first for us. We pledge not to mention Donald Trump for the rest of this show. Instead, we'll talk about some other things. We'll talk about trans issues with Susan Faludi. Her father made the male-to-female transition when he was 76. Her new book about him and her is fabulous. It's called In the Dark Room. Also, our friend Tom Lutz has been traveling a lot. He went to Lhasa to talk about Tibetan resistance to China. He went to Jordan to talk about Iran and America. And he went to Tehran to talk about the Kurds. His new book is Drinking Mare's Milk on the Roof of the World. But first, the fight for democratic control of government surveillance. For that, we turn to Ben Weisner. He's director of the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. He works at the intersection of civil liberties and national security. He's challenged the government in court over surveillance practices, targeted killing, and torture. He's also Edward Snowden's lawyer. Ben Weisner, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Well, I have in my hand my iPhone, You've suggested there's a better way to describe it. Well, I don't want to plagiarize the New York Times. Uh, a few years ago, a Times reporter said that we should stop calling it a phone, that a better word for it would be tracker. Um, this is a little computer in our pocket. Not only is it storing or providing a portal to the most intimate details of our lives, uh, it's also creating a record of everywhere we go. Uh, every time you want to make a phone call, every time you want to check the internet from your phone, it has to connect either to a cell phone tower or to a satellite, and it's broadcasting your location uh, back to the phone company, which is storing it uh, for you know at least a year and a half, and in some cases, longer. And, and this is um, creating uh, a remarkably intimate picture of your life. You may not think that where you go says everything about you, 
But um, imagine if I knew where your phone was every morning between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. What else would I know about you? Uh, what, I, what else would I know about who you were sleeping with, where you were sleeping? That's just one detail. Uh, governments can use this information to connect our phones to each other. They can know everybody who was in an anti-war demonstration or planning to uh, uh, protest outside the conventions in Cleveland and Philadelphia. Um, this database of the records of our movements really is a database of ruin if it's in the wrong hands and if it's misused. It's hard for the, for the government and the police to, to stop terrorist attacks. Don't we want to make it easier for them to protect us? <laughs> well, look, obviously we want government agents, we want law enforcement, we want intelligence officials to do what they reasonably can uh, to prevent terrorist attacks. Uh, there's no question. The problem is I think that since 9-11, um, somehow we've accepted as a society that anything, any authority, any power that we can give to government that might make us marginally safer, more secure, is one that we ought to relinquish without any question. Uh, but imagine if we applied that principle to our ordinary lives. Um, it's certainly the case that if we rigorously enforced a 55-mile-an-hour speed limit on all of our freeways and highways, we could drop highway deaths perhaps by thousands or even tens of thousands um, uh, over time. Uh, but we've decided as a society that we would rather get to Santa Barbara a few minutes earlier uh, than have that extra degree of safety. We make these kinds of decisions all the time. And if we can make them for convenience, shouldn't we also make them for things like constitutional values? Uh, you know, the people who wrote our Bill of Rights were not trying to make everything easy all the time for government. Read the Fourth Amendment. Uh, the Fourth Amendment says that cops can't just break down your door if they think that there's evidence of a crime inside. They have to first go and get permission from a judge. The Fifth Amendment says the cops can't force you to be a witness against yourself. They have to give you due process of law. Sixth Amendment, they got to give you a lawyer. Seventh Amendment, they got to give you a jury. Eighth Amendment, they can't beat you up uh, to get evidence or for any other purpose. And again, this was not written to make law enforcement easier. It was written to make it harder. Um, in a democracy, Inefficiency is a feature and not a bug when it comes to state power. Uh, we should be more worried about a government that has unlimited power than we should be worried about the possibility that we won't be able to solve every crime. And does it actually make it easier for the government to find uh, terrorist plots, to uh, have the phone metadata on hundred, hundreds of millions of people? You know, the only thing that is proven to help solve plots is individual targeted you know, boots and leather investigations. There's no evidence whatsoever uh, that mass surveillance has helped to prevent terrorist plots. And this isn't the ACLU speaking. This is two presidential commissions that have came to this conclusion. The president appointed uh, a review panel comprised of former intelligence officials and law professors who were his friends, and they concluded that they did not having had access to all of the classified information, see evidence that the collection of call records for all Americans um, had been instrumental in stopping even a single terrorist plot. Uh, so we have the worst of both worlds, uh, where we're slowly relinquishing constitutional values and, 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 and privacy rights uh, and not even getting anything in return. But even if there was some evidence that some plots had been uncovered, the ACLU would say... You know, I think evidence is always relevant. 
in constitutional analysis. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, uh, whether a program has some effectiveness, I'm not going to say here it would be irrelevant to a court deciding um, whether the balance has been struck in the right place. Of course, the Fourth Amendment uses the term reasonable. So there is room uh, for us to balance things. None of these rights are absolute. Um, uh, but, but there is no such evidence. And, and again, what's more dangerous is that there's really no limiting principle in the government's arguments here. Um, they say, let us collect everything. Trust us. We won't look at it unless we have a really good reason. Uh, and they say that about the metadata from our phone calls. But, but what if they decided that they wanted to install surveillance cameras inside our homes and our bedrooms? And they promised that they wouldn't look at it unless they had a really good reason for doing that. How would people feel about that? Uh, you know, what I want people to understand is that, you know, the metadata associated with their phones is just as sensitive uh, as the data that would be revealed, uh, maybe not as graphic, uh, but it tells you the same story as the data that would be revealed from those surveillance cameras. Well, one of the things we're most interested in, in is where is the opposition coming to government surveillance technologies? I was a little surprised to discover that actually some of our biggest corporations have been leading this battle. I, I always thought that the government did the corporations bidding, but now we have this amazing change where the world's most profitable corporation is the biggest adversary of the FBI in the fight to limit government surveillance of all of us. Well, it's not that we've grown accustomed to seeing governments doing the corporations bidding, but in the surveillance context, we've seen been accustomed to corporations doing the governments bidding, um, and you know I think that that was symbolized for a lot of people when they saw the story about the NSA's prison program and saw the logos of all of the technology companies that we rely on every day. Uh, to which we entrust our most intimate details and saw that they were part of this, uh, uh, you know, big spying apparatus. Um, I think that the new adversarial relationship between these Silicon Valley companies and the spy agencies um, is a positive development for liberty and for civil liberties. And let's just name them. So we're talking here about Apple. Uh, the world's most profitable corporation. We're talking about Google. We're talking about Yahoo. We're talking about Facebook. All of these entities taking much more aggressive steps to protect their customers' data from criminal hackers from foreign governments, but also it has the effect of making surveillance by our government more burdensome, more expensive. We want that. We want that. When the most powerful corporations and the most powerful spy agencies are working together in secret, hand in glove, that is not good news for liberty. Um, when they're slugging out in the public, that is a good thing. And, and, and let's be clear here. We're not always going to be on the side of the technology companies. You know, I think that we need powerful technology companies as allies in trying to rein in a very, very powerful surveillance state. Uh, as, as scrappy as the ACLU is here, these aren't fights that we can win alone. But I think we're going to be relying on federal government regulators like the Federal Trade Commission to protect us as consumers from these companies as well. Uh, it's not a one-way street, uh, but their adversarial relationship can be a kind of check and balance for our rights as citizens and as consumers. In why do you think it is that Apple and Google have taken on this role of being the lead adversaries in fighting the FBI on encryption? What, what is their, their motivation? So I think they have multiple motivations. Uh, you know, people who say that they're worried principally about their bottom line uh, are not wrong. 
they're companies. You know, they exist to make money, and companies now are global. They're not national or domestic. Uh, Apple needs to sell its products around the world. Google needs to uh, sell its customers to advertisers around the world. Uh, they're not just working within the United States. And if they're seen as being conscripted agents of the U.S. security state, it's going to interfere profoundly with their ability to grow their businesses outside the country. But that's not the whole story. I think these companies really were offended uh, by some of the disclosures in the Snowden documents. And they learned that even when the NSA was and the FBI were sort of knocking on the front door politely and presenting court orders, they were simultaneously looking for any weaknesses that they could find in these companies' global communications networks, finding places where data passed without encryption and siphoning it off without anybody's permission, um, and, and, and essentially taking affirmative steps to weaken online security in order to facilitate their surveillance. They were working to undermine commonly used encryption algorithms, uh, again, so that they could break that encryption. But the problem is there's no way for our government to go in without opening the door for other unsavory actors to come in as well. And so, uh, so these companies woke up to a different kind of threat model than the one that they understood about who was trying to, to, to attack them. Uh, and they hardened their defenses, which is hardening our defenses as well. Um, does that mean that there are cases where it will be harder for law enforcement to, to easily get access to evidence. It does mean that. Um, but that's a cost that we have to pay as a society in order to have uh, robust online security and privacy. Apple, Google, and their competitors are leading the fight. The media, the mainstream media, let's call it, uh, has also changed its relationship to government surveillance in the last couple of years. Well, I think so. I think that, that um, uh, you know, there's always been this push and pull and this give and take. You've always had the government trying to maintain a monopoly on secrecy, and you've had, you know, some enterprising investigative reporters who were able to cultivate sources inside government and try to compete with the government over the monopoly here. That's what investigative reporting is. Uh, it's trying to break the government stranglehold. Uh, it's trying to make sure that the government doesn't get to decide for the rest of us what information we'll have by which to judge it. Um, but I think that what you saw particularly after 9-11 um, was that the government had a lot of success in bullying the media out of reporting stories aggressively. Uh, you know, we saw this in 2004 when the New York Times uncovered uh, a grossly illegal domestic wiretapping program that had been authorized by President Bush where the NSA was eavesdropping on phone calls within the United States in contravention of federal law. Uh, but the Times was persuaded uh, bullied, I would say, um, by the Bush White House not to publish that story on a claim that it would harm national security. And the Times sat on that story for 14 months. During that period of time, President Bush was reelected. And the Times only eventually published the story because one of their reporters was going to publish it himself in a book. You know, we were all watching that. Uh, the Times itself has uh, expressed a lot of regret for the way that they handled that episode. Uh, and I think what we've seen with the Snowden reporting is that the government's claims, unless they're specific, uh, are seen as hollow, are seen as rhetoric. Uh, we've heard this song too many times. The government will always claim that publication of classified information will cause grave harm to national security, and almost always um, that's not the case. Uh, and, and you know, Nor are they weighing in the balance the harm to our democracy from withholding the information from the public in the first place. So, so I think um, I've been really gratified to see 
um, you know, how tough the press has been. Uh, it's not that they ignore the government. They do consult with them on publishing these sensitive stories. And if the government makes a reasonable claim that withholding a particular detail is important, uh, you have seen news organizations like the Washington Post and the New York Times and even The Intercept um, redact these documents. Uh, but this, you know, we're calling you to the White House and telling you you'll have blood on your hands, so don't publish any of it. Um, that song doesn't play anymore. And let's name the names here of some of our heroes. Of course, Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras are at the top of the list, but who else would you put on that list? Well, yes. So let's start with Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras, who had the courage to get on a plane to Hong Kong not knowing what they might encounter when they got there. Uh, That was a tremendous leap of faith that changed history. Um, And, uh, you know, more than that, uh, I think Laura's artistry, um, her way of beautifully telling the story, her way of persuading Edward Snowden to allow her to turn the camera on so the rest of us can see it, um, uh, you, you know, that's something that deserves special praise. Glenn plays a very unique role in the media ecosystem. Um, He is utterly fearless, um, and he is also a very persistent media critic, uh, and he creates a lot of space for other journalists. Um, He's so out front and so aggressive um, that, that, uh, you know, no one wants to be the person who doesn't have guts when they see what this guy is willing to do. Um, Let's mention Barton Gelman. Uh, who did most of the reporting for the Washington Post, was one of the original reporters uh, who got these documents and has uh, done a wonderful job with these stories. Uh, You know, unlike some of the other journalists, he had decades of experience in Washington. He had cultivated his own sources, and so he was able to do some deeper reporting uh, on some of these stories. Bart um, is working on a book about the surveillance state. He didn't get his out quite as quickly as Glenn Greenwald, but I'm convinced it's going to be a major contribution to this effort. Uh, and so those were the original Snowden journalists, you could call them. Um, since that time, a lot of other news organizations have come in to, to the reporting, including the New York Times and ProPublica, Der Spiegel in Germany. Uh, and I think Maybe we should mention James Reisand and Eric Lichtblau. Yeah, so James Risen and Eric Lischblau were the reporters who uncovered the unconstitutional surveillance program back in 2004. Uh, James Risen has also been part of the New York Times reporting team on some of the Snowden documents as well. And as, as, as listeners to this podcast will know, James Risen was willing to go to prison to protect a source in a leak investigation. So if we had democratic control of government surveillance, what would it look like? What, what kind of limitations, what kind of oversight would, would you like to see? You know, in particular, we want surveillance to be more difficult, not easier. Um, we want to add some friction to the system. Um, we don't want government to collect information about all of us because someday it might be useful. Um, We think that that turns the Fourth Amendment upside down. And what were the framers of the Constitution worried about? They were worried about general warrants. You know, general warrants were a practice where, you know, the Crown would seize all the letters and read through them to see which ones were treasonous. Um, This is the the way that these programs are being devised. Let's collect it all. This was an NSA mantra. Let's collect it all. Um, You know, the authorities will follow, the uses will follow, the budgets will follow. Um, Let's go back to the way that traditional law enforcement works. Uh, Let's make sure that 
uh, governments have a pretty good reason before they start collecting information, particularly on its own citizens. You know, the rules can be more relaxed for legitimate foreign intelligence surveillance, but we don't need to collect information about every citizen of the world in order to do foreign intelligence surveillance. I think what happened over the last years is that we allowed our capabilities to dictate our practices rather than having our practices be constrained by our values and by our laws. We did all this because we could. Um, they built these surveillance systems without even knowing how they might be useful, but just assuming that they probably would be uh, for some reason you know, down the road. We put the cart before the horse, um, uh, and we didn't think long and hard about what the Constitution had to say about this. More importantly, the public wasn't consulted. Um, it may be that majorities of the public will think it's a really good idea you know, to collect everything, uh, but let's have that debate. Why couldn't we have that debate before Snowden? There's no good reason. Ben Weisner, thanks for your work on this, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much, John. Now it's time to talk about trans issues and one male-to-female trans person. The Republicans have gotten excited about trans people after Obama got out in front on this issue, advising schools how to avoid discrimination against transgender students. The Department of Education says it would be discriminatory not to allow trans students access to the restrooms and locker rooms that align with their gender identity. Then the Republican Platform Committee took up the vital bathroom question, and the convention voted that states have the right to require trans men and women to use the bathroom of the gender on their birth certificate. Now Susan Faludi has told the story of one man who transitioned to woman, her father. Susan is best known for writing Backlash, the Undeclared War Against American Women. Everybody read it when it came out, and it's still considered indispensable. Then she wrote Stiffed. It's a book about men, which I always thought was a kind of masterpiece. And now she's got a new book out. It's about her father, and it's called In the Dark Room. We reached her today in Portland, Maine. Hi, Susan. Hi. Thanks for having me. You were way ahead of most of us on trans issues, and that's mostly because of an email you got from your father. Tell us about that email. In the summer of 2004, I was sitting in my office, uh, ironically packing up uh, folders from my last book, Stiffed, on masculinity, when I received this email, uh, which said, Dear Susan, I've got some interesting news for you. I have decided that I have had enough of impersonating a macho, aggressive man that I have never been inside. Um, and it was signed, love from your parent, Stephanie, uh, my father, who I had grown up with as uh, Stephen Faludi, uh, had flown to Thailand to get a, a sex reassignment surgery to become a woman. This was surprising by any account, um, but made more startling by a number of facts. Uh, first of all, my father at the time was 76 years old. Uh, and on top of that, my father and I had been estranged for um, more than a quarter century. 
And we were estranged because growing up, my father had been the (laughs) essence of the macho, aggressive man um, and had been domineering, overbearing to everybody in the family. So let me ask you about that. Growing up in the suburbs in the 60s, had you ever had the feeling that your father was a woman in a man's body? No, I I had the sense that my father was a mystery. Um, of course, most of us feel our parents are mysteries, yes. right? Yes. Um, and uh, that my father somehow didn't quite add up that as a man in the suburbs, he was trying on one identity after another, sort of a series of masks. Um, most of them were quite masculine persona. Uh, the mountaineer, we were always going off to these big marathon hikes and rock climbs, uh, ice climbs, winter camping. And my father always seemed to be assaying some, you know, peak and planting the flag somewhere. And my father was playing to the hilt the role of the household patriarch, often the household despot. He forbade my mother to work. He wanted these sort of classic 1950s father knows best, um, except not such a kind father. Um, My father could be extremely controlling and even violent at times. How much did your father abandoning his gender change his aggressive macho identity? Uh, Not not a lot. Um, Wishing for a sweeter, kinder, gentler personality is, you know, rarely (laughs) uh, makes it so. Uh, Over time, my father and I developed a relationship in which um, she sort of came out of her shell, came to trust me more, and vice versa. But, you know, on that first day when I got off the plane and there was my father waiting for me in the arrivals hall, dressed as a woman and as a sort of kind of grandmotherly woman. Um, But what struck me immediately was how much my father in other ways hadn't changed at all, was how my father was still quick to erupt with anger out of nowhere, um, was still very domineering, uh, very suspicious of people, still what we would call a macho man. But I think what what did change is my father was struggling with that and wanted wanted to be more open, wanted to be less isolated in his in um, her anger, and began to work on that. But it was a very long process, and she never she never completely changed. I don't think any of us do, unfortunately. Now you've spent your your life as a feminist writer and reporter challenging the gender binary, challenging the idea that men are naturally masculine and women are inherently feminine. Your father, of course, did exactly the opposite. For much of his life, he was hyper-masculine, and then at age 76, she became hyper-feminine. You you could have said about your post-transition father that she was just wrong. She didn't understand that gender is constructed. We know that gender is a spectrum. She's made a mistake. But that's not the approach that you took. Well, I was more interested in figuring out who my father was and what the forces were that, that shaped my father. And 
while we certainly had our disagreements about what it meant to be a woman, over time we began to talk much less about gender and much more about my father's past, about my father's Jewish identity, um, particularly as my father got older and was facing her mortality. The questions of the past rushed in. One of the biggest surprises about this whole thing is that he moved to Budapest in his 70s, despite the fact that he had been a survivor of the Holocaust as a teenager in Budapest. I don't think there's too many other Hungarian Holocaust survivors who moved back there in their 70s, or, or am I wrong about that? Uh, no, there aren't. Actually, it was um, he would have been born in his 60s because he was born in 1927. 60s. And if I'm doing the math right, that he returned um, as a man. He was still he then in 1990, so right after the fall of communism. Uh, my father's fellow Jewish Hungarian expats would say to me, yes, your father is a great mystery. Why would he go back as a Jew? <laughs> the, the woman thing was sort of secondary. You finally went to Budapest to visit him after his transition when you saw him for the first time in a couple of decades. And he told you this incredible line, now that I'm a lady, men have to help me. He told you, quote, you write about the disadvantages of being a woman, but I've only found advantages. <laughs> what did you make of that? Well, you know, my father also had a could have a very subtle, sly sense of humor. And I think partly my father was sort of poking at my feminism. But I, I think a big part of my father's desire to be the kind of woman that uh, my father was imagining was to be taken care of. I think that was part of the appeal, along with a lot of other things. I mean, first of all, I think my father's desire to be female is deep, you know, was deeply, deeply rooted. I don't think my father ran off and did this on a whim. I think this is something from very early on in childhood, and she talked to me about that. You know, from an early age, she was trying on women's clothes and trying on her mother's clothes and thinking about this. And got punished for and being got punished. Caught. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, we all have our conception of what a woman is based on the era we come out of, based on who our, who our parents are, the women who surrounded us. And for my father, being a woman meant being this kind of coddled, almost a diva, which the more I learned about my grandmother, uh, who I didn't know very much about <laughs> growing up because my father never talked about her or even communicated with her. But once I started on this book project, I began interviewing people in the extended family. And, and that pretty much described my grandmother. Uh, my grandparents before World War II were in, in bourgeois, affluent, urban Jews in Budapest. My grandmother went out to the opera and the theater every night, and my father was basically raised by a series of governesses and nannies and tutors. This all, of course, evaporated with the coming of World War II, in which many of my family members were um, murdered, were taken to Auschwitz, and my father wound up basically an urchin on the streets uh, trying to pass as a Christian with nothing but a 
uh, false identity papers and a stolen fascist armband. The most astounding thing is not only did he survive, he rescued his parents. Tell us, tell us that story. Yes, well, my grandparents at one point were in a, a so-called protected house, a Swiss protected house. Some of the neutral countries would just take over the abandoned apartment building and say that it was now under the protection of that nation, which worked for a while until in the late fall and winter of 1944, with the change of regime, there was this, you know, well, there was already a fascist party, but this was like an extremely fascist government um, led by the Arrow Cross Party, um, which was the equivalent of the, you know, Hungarian Nazis. They began, Arrow Cross officers began coming into the protected houses and um, taking out the so-called protected Jews and deporting them, sending them on death marches, or um, most notoriously shooting them by the thousands into the Danube. Uh, And my father, who had some kind of connection with the so-called resistance, which was basically a bunch of young Zionists, teenagers caught wind of this. And so with nothing but this fascist armband and a rifle that my father had gotten from one of the resistance groups, a rifle with no uh, no bullets, (laughs) marches up to the protected house and addresses the arrow cross guard at the gate and says, "Um, I'm here to take away the freedmen's, um, our, our family name before the war was freedmen. And gets the clearance, goes upstairs, storms into the room where my grandparents are with 40 other people and and says, you know, I'm taking away the freedmen's, clearly for you know, making it sound as if they're about to be shot, and then marches them down the stairs and, and out of the building. And the my grandparents and my father proceed to a place on the outskirts of Budapest where they hide in the cellar for uh, the rest of the siege of, of Budapest uh, with some false identity papers that my father also was able to obtain. It's a fantastic story. A, a, child, a kid rescuing his parents from certain Well, you death. know, my, when I was growing up, my father mentioned this but wouldn't give any details, mm. and I always sort of thought it was a fantasy And then when I began researching this book, I wound up going to Israel and meeting a a number of relatives, including sort of a great aunt who um, once removed, who actually was in the room the day that my father stormed in. So she was able to confirm it for me. And then it turned out that my father had also rescued her father from the Budapest ghetto. So, you know, here's my father who was sort of putting on this act of high macho in the suburbs, but in the war, my father was actually very heroic totally, and, and totally. valorous. And describing this world and these events to you, he says, the only way you can survive is by really believing you are what you are performing. Mm-hmm. At that moment, he was performing the part of being a Nazi soldier. And you ask her, which was harder, impersing a Gentile during the Holocaust or becoming a woman today? Two cases of passing as, as the other. And, and what does she say? 
She said, after thinking about it a bit, that that it was easier to become a woman today. And her her argument was, well, as a woman now, because I've because I've had this surgery, and I've changed, I've had my papers changed. I have proof, which you know, psychologically, I think was wound up with the reality that during the Holocaust. Uh, if you were a Jewish man, you could have all the false identity papers you wanted, and you could, quote-unquote, look Christian, but if they summoned you in the back room and told you to pull down your pants, saw you were circumcised, it was all over. Uh, there was even a, a term for it at the time. They referred, they referred to it as, tra- as uh, trouser inspections. So I think in so many ways, my father, as she would talk about either her gender transformation or she would talk about her experience in the Holocaust, she she often flipped back and forth. So I'd ask her a question about being a woman, and she would start talking about how, well, passing as a Christian during the war strengthened me for life because I learned how, how to fake things, uh, which isn't to say that there's a, at all a a causal link. It's not like the Holocaust flipped a switch in my father's gender, yeah. but that the two forms of otherness and the and, and the and the need for quote unquote passing spoke to each other. They were in conversation with each other in a really complicated way. Last, I want to talk to you about how your father felt about the fact that you were writing a book about her. There, you're always there with your notebook and your tape recorder and asking <laughs> these probing reporter-like uh, questions. She shows you at one point Richard Avedon's terribly painful photos of his own dying father, and she says to you, that's what you are doing to me. What do you think she meant by that? Well, it's Again, this is really complicated because this all this project of me writing about my father started at her invitation uh, in our first phone call after I received the email with the news of the sex uh, reassignment operation. My father invited me to write her story, and she loved being interviewed. And often it was a bit of a cat and mouse game where the more interested I get in something, the more she'd get this kind of Cheshire grin on her face and then not tell me. She parsed out the information <laughs> over the years. So it was, a, it was certainly my most challenging reporting assignment. But at the same time, you know, she knew that I wanted all the details. I didn't just want the... Um, happy story or the, and that I wasn't buying her argument that, okay, now that I'm a woman, everything's fine. And my past doesn't count. Um, She was often saying, oh, you know, when I'd ask something about her life before the operation, she'd say, oh, well, that's ancient history. That's not the person I am anymore. And yet she knew I was looking for the whole person and I was looking for the person who she was in the past. And I think that's where the comment about Richard Avedon emerged because it was a moment when my father was letting me know, I know what you're doing. I know you're not just writing some hagiography of me. But I think that's also, my father didn't want the hagiography because she would often boast really to other people. Oh, my daughter, you know, in front of me, my daughter is doing a book on me and, uh, you know, she, she's, 
she's a reporter who goes in there and she's very thorough and she doesn't pull any punches. So I think in the end, what my father wanted was to be perceived and to be seen whole. And for anybody who's seen those Avedon photos, on the one hand, they're they're really horrifying, a man dying of an old man dying of cancer. On the other hand, they're unforgettable. And they're taken by one of the great masters of photography. So to say you're like Avedon, that's that's not a bad thing for especially for someone whose whole life has been photography and in the image. Yes, and for someone who actually worked on Avedon photographs, which is why he was so familiar with them, because my father worked throughout her career uh, in the darkroom as a high-end commercial photographic developer and worked specifically on Richard Avedon photographs as along with uh, quite a few other prominent photographers, largely for fashion and beauty magazines and uh, mostly for Condé Nast. Her father worked in the darkroom, and that's the title of her amazing book, In the Darkroom. Susan Faludi is the author. Susan, it's been great talking to you today. It's been great talking to you, John. Thanks. Our friend Tom Lutz has been traveling a lot. He's founder and editor of the L.A. Review of Books, and he's also written a lot. I think my favorite of his books is Doing Nothing, A History of Loafers, Loungers, Slackers, and Bums in America. His books have been translated into 12 languages, and they've appeared on the New York Times bestseller list. He also writes for the New York Times and the New Republic and lots of literary magazine, and he teaches at UC Riverside. Last time we talked to her, he had just come back from Belarus just after the writer from Belarus, Svetlana Alexievich, had won the Nobel Prize. Now Tom's got a new book out. It's called Drinking Mare's Milk on the Roof of the World, Wandering the Globe from Azerbaijan to Zanzibar. Tom Lutz, welcome back. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. So what is the idea of this book? The idea of the book is that I've been telling people that I was traveling because I was a writer <laughs> and uh, for, for the last 30 years. And, it, and, I, and I kind of claimed all of my travel on my taxes as research. <laughs> and so eventually I thought I have to write a travel book just to, uh, to make it all kosher. And, <laughs> and so I, now, I've, now I've written two and a half of them. That is an excellent, excellent reason <laughs> to write a book. Uh, let's start with your report from Jordan, which in the world of travel writing really has only one world-class destination, the ancient city of Petra. But your chapter on Jordan is not about Petra. It's about a stop on the road to Petra. Yeah, it's a little place halfway between Petra and Amman, which is the the, it's called the Midway because it is actually Midway, and there's nothing else on that road. It's a, just a long, long, straight desert road. Uh, follows along the bridge on top of the along the Dead Sea, and there's there's just nothing else there. So I pulled in. I was hungry. Pulled in for lunch. You to the you are driving a rented car, and you are alone. I'm driving a rented car. I'm alone. I'm always driving a rented car. I'm almost always alone. That's the it's what the way I like to travel. Uh, it's the way I think to to really find a country to really see a country because even if you 
any other way you do it, you're you're kind of at the mercy of the bus stop or the or the uh, airport or the or, or the or you know your driver uh, in some cases. So it's it's this way you get to go off on little side roads. You get to stop in little tiny places like the midway and have interesting conversations. I pull in. There's it's a warehouse sized place full of knickknacks. Um, vases and chessboards and and swords and you know tourist trinkets and household goods it's a it's a bizarre bazaar and uh <laughs> in the middle of nowhere and there are no customers and uh it also has a little r- lunch counter so i s- sit down i say is there lunch and th- the young man says um eggs and i say great and he br- comes out and he brings me my food uh, and he sits down with me and we have a little chat about, uh, his relation to the world, my relation to the world. When I, when he first came in, I thought he was a kid. I thought he was 16, but he was clearly in his mid to late twenties. And one of the things that comes up is you are an American and the president of America is Barack Obama. Yes. He's not a fan of Barack Obama's. He's not a fan of the United States. Um, uh, I asked him, you know, what what people there thought. Did they think that that uh, the United States is uh, is after oil, or is is kind of monitoring the oil business, or are they do they hate Muslims? Why are we starting all these wars over there? And he said, Oh yeah, most people assume it's uh, it's because America hates Muslims. And but did he not have some? interesting views of Obama well he 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 said he said that uh, that that uh, Obama was of course from Kenya uh, so that and uh, and 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 uh, but he didn't think he was a, a Muslim uh, did, did you tell him that he, Obama is not from Kenya yeah yeah this this kid was very cosmopolitan in a lot of ways he, he, he had lived in a number of countries in Europe he loved Germany he hated Spain. He hated Italy. He hated Greece, uh, and he um, and the next place he wanted to go was Burkina Faso. Um, he thought it was a good place to work. It's a Muslim country, and uh, he was he was interested in going to Burkina. So he's a very very cosmopolitan kid in some ways, and in other ways um, not. He was very proud of the fact that he was from Zarqua. Uh, what is Zarqua? It's a kind of suburb of uh, Amman that uh, is where Al Zarqua. Zarqawi was oh, from. Al-Zarqawi and that from, means he's from yes. Zarqua. That's all it means. So he said, I am Al-Zarqawi. I'm oh. from Zarqua. I, I was fascinated by uh, your converse, conversation with him about about Iran and the, the Shia people. He asked me where else I'd been in the region. I told him I'd been to this country, that country. He kind of nodded about some of them. And then he, and I, when I said Iran, he, he kind of per, he raised an eyebrow and looked a little uh, askance. And I said, what, what's that? He said, so what did you think of Iran? I said, it was... I thought it was great. I thought the people were beautiful. He said, the people were beautiful. <laughs> and I said, what? What?" And he said, do you know what Shia is? And I said, well, of course I know what Shia is. And he said, yeah, Shia hate Muslims. Shia hate Muslims. Yeah. I haven't heard that before. No, I had not heard it before either. But it's, yeah, and it's kind of like, you know, somebody saying Baptists, they hate Christians, yeah. right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's to us, Shia. Whenever we talk about sectarian violence, I don't think we tend to understand how deep the divide between these sects are. Mm. They're the, uh, from the inside; they look like different religions. Tom Lutz, his new book, "Drinking Mares Milk on the Roof of the World." Uh, you also went to Lhasa in Tibet. Of course, everybody knows the 
Dalai Lama, head of Tibetan Buddhism, lives in exile because China has occupied Tibet. What was it like for you to be in Tibet, and what did you see of uh, Tibetan Buddhism? I was kind of horrified by Tibetan Buddhism. I'd grown up as a, you know— as a part-time Buddhist myself, Aren't of, we a, all? an amateur Buddhist. And so I, you know, I, and I think that the, that the, that the, uh, eightfold path is a wonderful guide to living. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, still a fan. But as a young man, I read a lot of, you know, Alan Watts and a lot of people talking about uh, Alan Watts, a, a regular on KPFK, of course. Yes. Uh, um, you know, talking about how we Westerners had a terrible relation to Zen. We're all materialists and we're all um, utilitarians. And so we don't really understand. We don't really get it. We're, we're second-class Buddhists at best. And, uh, and the, the Tibetans were supposed to be some kind of pure form. When I got there, I, wa- I became like Martin Luther. I wanted to nail my theses to the, to the door of the Potala Palace and the Joe Kang Temple and say, you know, this is, there, there are, statues of saints. Their saints are supposed to intercede. The poor people come in from the countryside. They throw their little tiny amount of disposable income at the feet of these statues. The monks rake it up, tally it up, put it in little bundles and and uh, live in the best digs in town. So I, I found it I found it very uh, disturbing at, at one level. And then at another level, the people that are walking around, the pilgrims that are going around the, the temple every day doing their three circuits, um, they seem to be sleepwalking. And it, and it reminded me of the, of the ghost, uh, ghost dance cults uh, in America in the 1890s. It just was, a, it seemed like a sad culture that knew. And, and P.S., there are sni- Chinese snipers on the roofs of the buildings. There are Chinese um, phalanxes of Chinese soldiers wandering through all of these pilgrimage routes at all times. There are Chinese military trucks running up and down the streets once you get outside of the walking parts of the city. Um, there, it is a occupied land, and it's a, and it's a severely occupied land. All repression is, all, all, all activity is really, really repressed. So it makes sense that people were depressed and, and run down and, and, and despondent looking. The Potala Palace, the uh, historic home of the Dalai Lama. It's been, I, I looked at photographs of this, you know, when I was a kid in National Geographic, one of the first things that was ever photographed in color for the National Geographic. Ah, I did not know that. Uh, but you you went to the you saw the Potala Palace and you you looked across the street. Across the street is an absolutely hideous monument built by the Chinese to uh, the kind of liberation of the Tibetan people, and it, and I think that the only reason it's there is just to remind people who's in charge, who's the boss. It's just a big, nasty, uh, unattractive spike into the sky um, with some heroic Chinese soldiers uh, in bronze out front. In your chapter on visiting Tibet, you say, nevertheless, the Tibetans find ways to protest. Tell us about that. Well, there's. I went to a uh, nightclub uh, that had a, was a kind of a variety show, and they had a lot of costume. You know, the same troupe of people would come dressed up in this outfit and that outfit, and comedies and and slapstick. And one group, one one of the costumes was a kind of, you know, 
Fu Manchu mustaches pasted on and uh, Chinese robes. And they came out as Mandarin um, uh, numbskulls. And they were, it was, they were the objects of ridicule. And the, and the audience howled uh, as they slipped and fell and, and uh, acted stupid on the stage. So there's that. There's also a young woman walking around with a cap. And I don't know if I can say this on the air, John. Probably I can't. But you'll just bleep it, I think, right? It says, we, her, her trucker's cap said, we f the fake <laughs> and I, I was a little, I was a little confused by the syntax of that. Um, I'm not entirely sure exactly what it meant, but it was clearly anti-fake. <laughs> was what language was this written in? Uh, it was in English. In English. Yes. Uh, and I, I pointed to her cap and and you know asked, kind of shrugged to ask if she had anything to say about it, and she, uh, she smiled, shrugged back. <laughs> The last thing in your uh, report on Tibet is uh, the banner across the road to the airport. The developing zone. By the way, I, I think you probably know this, John, but there's, there, all across China, one of the ways the Chinese government tries to deal with its ethnic minorities, because it is, like many empires, always fraying on the edges. Um, Tibet is pretty locked down. Uh, Uyghur country, the whole huge, enormous western part of China. I mean, it was... 250 miles from the Kyrgyz border to the first town. Um, this is big, vast spaces. And it was another 800 miles to the Uyghur capital uh, of Urumqi. Um, and and in, uh, in, in each of these places, they build a Han city right next door to the, to the ethnic city. So the Uyghur city of Kashgar has a Han city of Kashgar next to it. The, the Tibetan city of Lhasa has a Han Lhasa right next to it. These cities, the Han cities are now overtaking in terms of size and certainly in terms of economic power and everything else, uh, taking over the, the, the ethnic cities um, in these areas. Uh, these are called developing zones. And so on the, on the way to the airport, there's a big banner across the, uh, across the uh, highway, and it says the developing zone is quite amazing. <laughs> Tom Lutz, his new book, Drinking Mare's Milk on the Roof of the World. I was fascinated by your visit to Tehran, especially the part about going to the Shah's Palace, which remains apparently a very big tourist destination. Yeah, it's a it's a tourist spot and it looks like it's so such a time capsule. You know, it looks it's by uh, Iran's uh, foremost kind of modernist architect, Furugi. Uh, and he um, I th it looks a little to me like Avery Fisher Hall in New York. It has a <laughs> real kind of late 60s uh, hyper modern feel to it. Everything's beige and very quiet. Um, and there are pictures of the Shah with everybody famous, uh, every world leader, um, and every Hollywood star and Rat Pack personage, and every everyone else in the strewn around. And my favorite part were the kids' bathrooms. Was <laughs> <laughs> in the kids' bathrooms. The kids' bathrooms had the same kind of autumn palette for the um, tiles uh, along the walls as the rest of the of the palace, but the kids had put up a bunch of decals of Disney characters. And the Disney character decals were, you know, fraying and curling up a little bit on the edges. And it just kind of broke my heart. I just felt like this is, this is, this is a, this, they had no idea what was coming any day. Uh, they should have. Um, he went the way of most dictators. Um, 
and uh and so he it made it makes sense and and most puppets um uh, he was a he was a great puppet. Um, and speaking of Na- National Geographic, I remember pictures of him in National Geographic when I was a kid. Was chest to be decked with medals and sashes, and he was he really played the part uh, very well as uh, our man in Tehran. I I just want to go back to the photographs that you said were on the walls of his office. You said. There was a picture of Elvis. Is this the Shah with Elvis? The Shah with Elvis, yes. And he puts up this picture in his office. In his office, yeah. There, there are pictures of uh, and and Anne Margaret, and and Frank and oh. Dino and uh, yeah. uh, you know and but also I, I, I there's I, he's with Gandhi and he's with uh, he's with Khrushchev and he's with all of the American presidents. So it's world leaders and American pop idols. The real heart of this chapter comes when you leave the Shah's uh, uh, palace and you go back to your hotel and the guy offers to help you find the way. Yeah, he's a young kid um, and he is Kurdish. Um, I, you know, I don't realize this at first. He says to me, I'm, I'm court. And I say, okay, court, you're going to court, you're, 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 you're you play tennis. I don't. I have no idea what he means, but eventually I realized it means he's Kurdish. And at one point on the subway, he, um, I'm talking to a young businessman. Uh, I fall in a conversation, and he he asked the kid something. I said, he said, you know, do you know where you're headed? Uh, to back, I said I was headed back to my hotel. He said, you know how to, where to find it? And I said, absolutely. Yeah. And this kid is helping me. Um, and uh, and he turns and says something to the kid. The kid answers him. And then the, this young, slick businessman just steps between me and the kid, really cuts the kid like an, an 18th century, you know, uh, snub, and stands between us and never looks at him again. And as we walked away from this, from this little encounter, I asked the kid, and he said, yeah, this is, this is normal. I said, so your Kurds are second-class citizens? And he said, well, maybe, maybe third-class. Um, and, of course, I was there for a conference on multiculturalism, so the in which the Kurds were never mentioned um mm. it's a it's a it's a very very strained relationship obviously um between the Kurds and the Iranians although I had talked to Kurds who were also in the Iranian military and were they're completely integrated at one level in the society but they're very very much second class citizens so in this book and in the sequels to come you report on your travels to dozens of places Americans don't usually go. Uh, I just want to talk about the big picture here. I've always loved that quote by uh, Thoreau in Walden against people who travel like you do. Thoreau said something like, what do I care about counting cats in Zanzibar? I have traveled far in Concord. A wonderful sentence. What is it for you about counting cats in Zanzibar that's that keeps you going why why do you do it I wish I knew John and and I'm you know I keep I keep writing trying to write my way into an understanding of it and uh, and I try a number of different theories out as as I go along and I've had a number of different theories um, as for I, example well I, running away from something yeah for it, for instance, Just yeah, one random yeah, theory. That's a that's a random theory, and and uh, and of course, my first experience of the big wide world was running away from home mm. with my little red wagon, and and uh, I don't know if I was four or five, and 
I don't know what I had in the wagon, but I, 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 I remember running away from home a couple times as a kid. So the, there, there was, a, there is a sense that it's, that it is, it represents freedom. It is freedom. Um, on the other hand, you know, sleeping in a 50 cent room, uh, in the top of the, you know, in, in, in the middle of a small town in India at a truck stop in India, it's not exactly fun and it's not exactly freedom. It does sometimes make me feel like the most interesting man in the world, right? I mean, so there's there's a there's a way in which I clearly I like what it means about me that I do this. Well, that's what I that's what I think about you. Yeah, so I like that. I like that you think that. So there's there's that, and 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 sometimes, of course, it makes me feel like the most obtuse man in the world because I wander through all these places. I I get a brief impression. I really don't know any of them particularly well. Um, I'm kind of like the big dumb American you know, screaming through the world at a, at an incredible pace, um, and, and skimming the surface of everything. So I, 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 I get both sides of that. I think that I'm driven to do it. I think I'm interested in why I'm driven to do it. And I talk about it in the book, uh, in a number of different ways, sometimes as, 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 um, running away from something, sometimes as just pure education, sometimes as a kind of being addicted to the sublime, uh, which I believe I am. I, and these m- moments of sublimity come to me. I mean, they can come in a, in a, in a famous world capital too. They can come in Paris or London or, or Rome. I mean, obviously you see Michelangelo and it's a sublime experience, but, but for me, the real moments of sublimity happen off the end of the road, off the grid, in the middle of nowhere. And, um, is that just a matter of personal preference? I don't know. Tom Lutz, Drinking Mare's Milk on the Roof of the World. Tom, congratulations on the book, and thanks for talking with us today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, John. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our recording engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.